0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: Okay, so let's summarize. So that we understand where we're at now, because we've been doing this for a couple of months. For many years, I have used the phrase "be the Christian." And when I said that, I usually said, "If everybody else in the world turns their back on Christianity, if all your friends, neighbors, and families all apostatize as a group, you don't let that change your essential faith. You." be the Christian, regardless of what everybody else does. Then after several weeks of describing what it was to be a Christian, we started talking about the benefits of Christianity, and we found that the Bible gives us a great many benefits of being Christian, and that brought us to our eschatological hope our hope for the days to come, our hope for the last days. And last week, we sort of introduced that topic, and we ended up with, since I don't take anything for granted and feel that it's necessary to prove everything I'm saying biblically, last week we established that Christ is actually coming back because we read Acts 1, And when Christ rose up off the planet and was enveloped in clouds, an angel stood there and said, ye men of Galilee, why are you looking up into the sky? This same Jesus will return in like manner as you saw him leave. And that is why all of the descriptions of the return of Christ have him returning in clouds of glory. So we wanted to establish that and then see what the biblical authors said about it. And Paul said repeatedly that there are some who, quote, love his appearing. Hopefully that's the camp that we all fall in. We're the group that love his appearing. And then he also, in writing to Titus, referred to that as our blessed hope that we are anticipating his return, we are looking confidently forward to his return, we are hoping for that moment when he does return, and we love his appearing. But another thing that we saw last week is that the return of Christ divides humanity because there is that group that loves his appearing, and then there is that group that we saw who run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth, and they cry to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of him that sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. So Christ is coming back in wrath and judgment with a two-edged sword out of his mouth to rule and reign with a rod of iron, or you're in the group that loves his appearing. So now the question before us is, is that one single return of Christ. Is there a single return of Christ during which part of the population of planet Earth runs out to greet him and loves his appearing while another group is running for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth and saying, hide us from the wrath of him. So in that one appearance, in that one parousia, in that one return of Christ, Is there a dividing moment between those who love him and those who are afraid of him? Or are those two different occurrences? As we continue in this series, you're going to see that it's actually two different occurrences. Proven by the fact that the way the Bible describes the two returns of Christ, the details are just simply different. This morning, we're going to see that when Christ appears in the clouds of heaven, we rise to meet him in the air, and so will we ever be with the Lord. Well, that sounds like an air thing. But then you read in the book of Zechariah that when he returns in judgment, his feet touch the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives splits in half, and you don't see any such description of his return for his church. So even as you look into the details, you start to recognize that this is two different occurrences, two different returns of Christ to the planet for two different purposes that have two different results. We're going to concentrate this morning on the first of those appearances and the results of those appearances. Last week I left you with the notion that there had to be of necessity a resurrection. And the reason that there has to be a resurrection is because God is, what's that word? Righteous and holy, absolutely perfect. And then there's you. And you are sinful and you are depraved. You're still in your sinful, wretched body. And nothing impure or unclean, can reside in the presence of God who has encased himself in a light that no man approaches. And so something has to change. Something has to be improved in you dramatically for you to think that you can live in the presence of God. How are you going to stand in the presence of an absolutely righteous holy one when you yourself are decaying and dying And sinful. And so there has to be a change. When you die, your spirit returns to God. But your body goes into the grave and then is going to undergo a change to take it from its impurity to a state. Of perfection where indeed you can body soul and spirit be utterly changed and redeemed so that you can stand in the presence of God I didn't just make that up that's something that Paul himself tells us so let's start there let's start with there has to be a resurrection from the dead in order for you body soul and spirit to stand before God Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This morning we're going to read the majority of this chapter. And we're going to follow Paul's argument as he explains to us that our bodies have to be changed in order to stand before God. But then he's also going to introduce a mystery. And that mystery is not everybody dies. And yet... Everybody who belongs to God resurrects. Some people resurrect immediately and step from life into life. Okay, now we've never seen that. And yet that's what the Bible explains to us as part of our eschatological hope. That we have that hope that we may be among the generation of people who are here when Christ returns. And we don't have to die to get our new bodies. We will be instantaneously changed. Oh, I'm hoping for that one. Because as I have said repeatedly, I'm not afraid of death. I mean, death is going home. I'm not afraid of death. I'm afraid of the process of dying the process of dying, that can get ugly. That becomes painful, that worries me. It's not the dead part, it's the getting to the dead part. Oh, but if you can just instantaneously put on immortality so that you don't have to go through that whole dying thing, well, sign me up. That sounds like a really good deal. And again, I didn't just make that up. Paul's going to say that to us. Is everybody at 1 Corinthians 15? Yes. We're going to start at verse 20 and then read, well, the vast majority of the rest of that chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. That is the fundamental of all Christianity. Without the resurrection of Christ, you don't have Christianity. Without the resurrection of Christ, you don't have any hope. Without the resurrection of Christ, your sins are not paid for. Without the resurrection of Christ then you have no confidence that there actually was a redemption price paid and that God received that redemption price and therefore your sin debt is fully paid for. Without the resurrection, according to Paul, you are of all men most miserable because all you get is this life and then you got to stand before God in your sins and be judged without a mediator. Yeah. Yeah, Leon just went, yeah, that's right. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For 1,500 years, the Jews had been keeping the feast of first fruits. Every year, continually, the feast of first fruits. They didn't understand why they were keeping it, but they kept doing it because it was an essential part of the law. They had to go to Jerusalem three times a year and they had to keep the Feast of First Fruits. And Paul takes that notion because the entire concept of First Fruits was that if you brought God the first fruit of your labor, the first fruit of your field, the first of your harvest, if you brought him the newest wine, if you brought him the newest grain, then there was blessings on the whole rest of the crop. And so... Paul picks up that concept and says, Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection, meaning then that there's going to be a harvest within the resurrection and a whole lot of other resurrections guaranteed by the fact that he was the first fruit of the resurrection. So don't just pass over that word first fruit without recognizing that Paul is investing very deep theological meaning into that by saying that Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. He raised from the dead. For since by a man came death, that's Adam, by Adam's sin, death reigned. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Adam brought about death to all men. Christ brings about resurrection from the dead. For in Adam... All die. That's a fact. You can prove it. Everybody who ever lived died. That's just universally true. And that's because Adam. In his sin, in his fall, in his rebellion against God, brought death to the planet, and as a consequence, everybody dies. And you die because you are sinful, because you do have depravity and decay in your body. For the people who want to claim that they have not sinned, all they got to do to prove that is just not die. If you just don't die, we'll believe that you have no sin in you. But the wages of sin, according to Paul, is death. That's the payment to you for the fact that you are a sinner. You are going to die. And that's been happening ever since Adam. So since it is a man who brought death... It is a man who brings about the resurrection from the dead. That's one of the myriad reasons why Jesus became a human being. Took on flesh and blood. So that he could be like his brethren. So that a man would bring about the resurrection from the dead. For in Adam all die. So also in Christ all will be made alive. Now we have to be very careful with that sentence. Because it is universally true... That every human being dies because we are all Adam's posterity. But we are not all Christ's posterity. However, everyone who's in Christ will participate in the resurrection. So be careful with the word all there. Don't decide that, well, then since we all die in Adam, that means that we're all universally, every one of us, going to resurrect because Christ resurrected. That's not the meaning that Paul is driving at here. All those who are in Adam, which is everybody, died in Adam. Everybody who's in Christ will be raised in Christ. Because he is the progenitor, the first fruit of the resurrection. Christ is first. Each is going to be in his own order. This is the order of the resurrection. Christ, the first fruits, he resurrected first. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. We're talking about the return of Christ. One of the benefits of the return of Christ is we who do belong to him are going to resurrect when he comes. People are going to rise up out of their graves. By the way, You read in the Gospels that when Christ resurrected from the dead, there in Jerusalem, there were many saints who rose up out of their graves. So you already have a proof of this. You already have a precursor. You already have a demonstration of this by the very fact that when Christ resurrected, people in Jerusalem got up out of their graves. So that becomes the evidence that what Paul is telling us here is true, that when Christ returns, we who belong to him are going to rise as well. So here's the order again, Christ who is the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end, which means, by the way, the resurrection predates the end, whatever that eschatological end is, it doesn't happen until after The resurrection. And the end is established by this. Then comes the end when he. So he's going to do something very particular. That's going to designate the eschatological end. And what is that thing he's going to do? He's going to hand over the kingdom. To God and the father. So that brings about the end. Which also means that. Our resurrection and his return predates the eschatological end when he hands the kingdom to his father. So, Paul has established an order here. And the order of things that are going to happen is Christ resurrects, we resurrect, then he hands over the kingdom to God the Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power in other words all earthly power all earthly kingships all earthly authority is all going to be abolished in favor of the absolute authority of Christ himself as he establishes his kingdom which kingdom he then gives as a gift to his father so that's the order of things Do you remember last week I said we are living in this wonderful eschatological moment in the course of time, in the course of history. All of this stuff has happened that we read about in the Old Testament. All this stuff has happened that we read about in the Gospels. But then there's all this other stuff that's predicted that just hasn't happened yet. And we're living right here in the middle of what has happened and what's going to happen. And Paul says that we are living right between the resurrection of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom that he's going to hand over to his father. So we're living in this moment of time where we recognize what God has done, so that should establish our faith, that should build up our faith, and what he's going to do. And we know for sure that he's going to do it because he's already done everything else he said he's going to do. So we can look forward with this hope that Christ is going to raise us from the dead. Establish a kingdom, hand it to his father, and he is going to abolish all earthly rule and all authority and all power. Why? Because he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death itself. So that's the big order that Paul has laid out for us. Paul has told us the order of things that are going to occur and right in the midst of that order is we get up from the dead. And the guarantee of the promise that we are going to rise from the dead is that Christ rose from the dead. Okay, I'm going to go with that's a pretty big benefit. (laughs) When we're talking about the benefits of being Christian... Rising from the dead, knowing that the grave is not going to hold you down, but that you are going to burst up out of your grave someday, pretty big benefit, I'd say. Verse 35, but someone's going to argue, according to Paul, but someone's going to say, how were the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come out? And Paul says, that's a good question. It's a fair question. Let me see if I can. I'm sorry, that's not what he says. He says, you fool. (laughs) Good old Paul, making friends and influencing people. He says, you fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Okay, remember he's talking to an agricultural culture. They know what it is to plant and grow things. In fact, if they don't plant and grow things, they don't eat. And so they know what it is to plant seed. And they know that when they plant seed, it goes into the ground and germinates. And part of that process of germination is that the seed dies, and then it becomes something other than what you planted. You don't plant full stalks of wheat. You plant the seed, and then the seed becomes a stalk of wheat with a head with grain on it. So Paul says, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which it is to be, but you sow bare grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So he's saying the same thing I just tried to elucidate. You don't sow fully grown stalks of corn. That would be silly. Instead, what you plant is that kernel that then dies, that then becomes the corn stalk, that then produces corn. So there is a change between what you plant and what it becomes. And Paul says, that's just the natural way of things. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but bear grain, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body just as he wishes, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. In other words, if you plant corn seeds, you're not expecting to get tomatoes, You have to plant the seed that is particular to the fruit that you're attempting to grow. Whatever the grain is that you're attempting to grow, that's the kind of seed you plant. God gives it a body just as he wished. And to each of the seeds, it gets a body of its own. All flesh, now that you understand his analogy, now that you understand the example that he's given from plant life... He says, all flesh is not the same flesh. There is one flesh of men. There's another flesh of beasts. There is another flesh of birds and another flesh of fish. You should be happy for that. That's why you don't have scales. That's also why you don't have feathers. Birds have feathers. Dogs and kitties have fur. Fish have scales. You have a completely different flesh than all of those creatures. His point is that's the design of God. It is unique to every creature that they have a particular kind of flesh. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also, in the same way, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies the most obvious demonstration of that is that when Christ came back to the planet after his resurrection, he did things like go through rocks. He went through a locked door. He rose up off the earth. Why? Because he had a heavenly body. He no longer had that strictly earthly fleshly Body. and so Paul says there are different kinds of bodies there are heavenly bodies like the angels have and there are earthly bodies like Kellen's stuck with and they're different <laughs> but the glory of the heavenly is one kind of glory and the glory of the earthly is another I've told you before that that word doxa translated glory there means the essence of something The essential elements of what make up a heavenly body is different than the essential elements of what makes up an earthly body. And there is one glory, one doxa, one essence of the sun, and there's another glory of the moon, and there is another glory of the stars, for stars differ from other stars in glory. Glory in the essence of what they are. All you got to do is walk outside at night and look up and you'll see different kinds of lights in the sky. And that, Paul says, is because stars are even different. All of those differences between animal bodies and fish bodies and bird bodies and human bodies and heavenly bodies and earthly bodies and the essential body, the essential glory of star against star... All of that, he says, is part of God's design who gives to everyone and everything a body specific to it. So you have one kind of specific body right now that you are living in, but his whole point is you're going to get a different kind of body. Remember, he's still answering the question, how were they raised? What kind of body do they have when they are raised up? Well, you're not going to have the same body you have now, and thank God for that. Mm-hmm. I look forward to that whole new body thing, that resurrected body thing, that body that is as comfortable, like Jesus' body, as comfortable at the right hand of God as he was frying up fish on the shores of Galilee. How, how amazing is that? I'd love to have that kind of body. But that's what we're promised. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. So everything Paul said up until now is kind of introducing the topic, getting the idea in your head that when you plant a seed, it dies, and then it comes up a different kind of body than what you actually planted. Same thing with human beings. When you're planted in the ground, the body you're going to come up with is different than the body that was planted. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown, it is buried, a perishable body. That's why we die, because our bodies are perishable. And in fact, they are perishing, And in fact, we're all dying from the minute we're born because that's what's inbuilt into our earthly bodies is that process of gradually perishing. In some of our cases, more quickly perishing. It is sown in dishonor. It is sinful. It is depraved. It is buried in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. A glorified body. You have to have a glorified body to stand in front of a completely glorious God. And so God is going to change your body. He is going to give you that resurrected body that is as comfortable in heaven as it is on earth, as it is in the New Jerusalem. It is sown in weakness. Boy, that's the truth. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: By the time you're dead. You've maximized your weakness. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it was written, the first man, Adam, Became a living soul. The last Adam, who is Christ, became a life giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then came the spiritual. Okay, here's Paul's argument. This is the order of things. God is not of confusion. God has an order to the way he does things. Paul just laid out an order for us. And what comes first for us is not that we start spiritual and then become physical. We start physical and graduate to spiritual. So Paul could say the first man, Adam, became a living soul. First, he was formed out of the dust of the ground. First, he was formed by God, and he was an actual human creature at that point. He just had no life in him. So God breathed on him. The pneuma, the breath of God came into him, and then he became a living soul. That becomes the pattern for all human life after that. The last Adam, Christ, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth. He's earthy. The second man is from heaven. So Adam is raised up out of the dust of the earth. He's an earthy man. We follow that pattern. But Christ came down out of heaven. Therefore, he is the heavenly man who is the life-giving spirit. Who guarantees our mortal bodies that we are going to have immortal different heavenly bodies like his. But the process is you start physical. You start earthly. That's always been the pattern. And then you graduate to spiritual. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. So just like Adam, so are you. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. In other words, you started like Adam, you're going to wind up like Christ. You started earthy and sinful, you're going to graduate to glorified, heavenly, spiritual. All in the resurrected, renewed, remade body that you're going to have. Just as we have already borne the image of the earthly, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, I say this, brethren, this is verse 50. Now, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood, these earthly bodies, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's what I said to you last week. If you remain in this earthly body, if this is as good as it gets for you, you can't inherit the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is nothing but righteousness and holiness and purity and perfection. And that doesn't describe Lawrence. No matter how hard we try, he's not going to make it to heaven as long as he remains in this earthly body. So now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood... Cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's why I said something has to change. You need this resurrection of necessity. Or you're not going to make it to heaven. Nor does this dying, this perishable, inherit the imperishable. But behold, look at Paul go here. But behold, now that I've established this thing, this order, where everybody who lives in Adam all die, and those that are in Christ then resurrect again to have a spiritual body, and that's the way it always works, and that's the way it always has worked, and that's the way it's established. Then Paul throws in, but behold, I show you mysterion. I show you a previously unrevealed truth. I show you something you wouldn't know unless I had told you. Behold, I show you a mystery. We will not all die. Wait, but we all will be changed. That means that some people are going to go through an instantaneous change. In a moment, we'll get to exactly how instantaneous that is. Some people go through that change without doing the dead part. They step from life into life. And I'll say again, sign me up. Where is that cue? Where is that long line? I want to get in that line. We will not all die, but we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. How quickly does light glint off your eye? It's very quick. As quick as that Light flashing across your eye in the very twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. So collectively, the whole of the church, the whole of the body and bride of Christ... The entirety of those people who belong to Christ, whether dead or alive, when Christ returns, there's going to be a reveillee trumpet, a wake up trumpet. And everybody in the graves who belong to Christ are going to rise up from the dead, and then we, who have been instantaneously changed, will join them, the entire throng of the church. Of the living Lord. And we will all be alive. And then what happens to us? Do we continue living on the planet? Do we go back to our day jobs? What happens at that point? Well first Paul says. This perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on Immortality, notice the word must being used over and over again. It's why I said, of necessity, there has to be a resurrection. That must happen. Why? Because this perishable, sinful body must put on an imperishable body in order to go to eternity, in order to live for all eternity. Our mortal bodies, right here and right now, can't do that because they're perishing. And that's why Paul says they must put on imperishability so that they then can live forever. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death Where is your victory, O death, where is your sting?" The sting of death is sin, because the wages of sin is death. But then when he brings everybody up, remember the first time he was here, he paid for your sin debt. The writer of Hebrews, we saw it last week, says that Christ is returning a second time without regard to sin. Because he's not coming back to pay the sin debt. He's already done that. He's coming back to get his church. He's coming back to cause the mortals to put on immortality. He's coming back to get his bride. He said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may also be in my father's house. There are many dwelling places. The King James says, many mansions. And then he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, and I'll come again and take you to where I am. Okay, that's a promise from Jesus. Okay, when he comes back, he's going to raise his church, his bride, from the grave in order to take them to the dwelling place that he's been all this time preparing for us in his father's house. The bridegroom is returning for his bride. And then he's going to make himself a perfect, spotless, blameless bride. And take her home. And death will be swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he not only paid our sin debt. He also perfected the law and took it out of the way and nailed it to his cross. So that the law can't convict us. So that no one can lay anything to the charge of God's elect. And he also paid our sin debt. So that our entire debt to God is utterly paid. So neither sin can get us. Or the law can get us. There are no charges that can be laid against us. Because in Christ we are utterly, completely, fully, eternally saved. That's the message of the gospel. Is that he did it all. He did it all. Completely, And he did it so completely, you also have the guarantee, the hope that when he returns, you're going to become like him because you were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. See how Paul's theology all just ties together? He's saying the same thing over and over again. So, okay, what do we know so far? So far we know that Christ is returning and that at his return, some people will not die, but we will all be changed so that we become suitable for the kingdom of God. That, I'm going to say, is a pretty big benefit for Christianity. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a great time to be alive, doesn't it? Yes. To be alive when Christ returns. That's why that's part of the Christian hope. Every generation of Christians, starting at Paul, Hope that they would be alive when Christ returned, so they could go through that moment of not only loving his appearing, but then going through the instantaneous change. But what about the people who aren't alive when he comes back? Have they just missed out on that instantaneous change? I had a conversation years ago with Elder Ward, By the way, Micah referred to me this morning as Elder McLarty, which technically is the the right title. I said to him, is it because I hit 65? And he said, yeah, you've earned it. (laughs) So, So that's what I expect now, Elder McLarty. Anyway, David Morris and I had a conversation once with Elder Ward, and we were talking about that whole concept of of dying and resurrecting versus going through the instantaneous change. Some of you have heard this story, but I'm going to tell it again anyway, just because I like remembering Elder Ward. He said that he looked forward to bursting up out of the ground. David and I both agreed that we wanted to go through the instantaneous change. That's what we wanted to know. And he said, no, no, I want to know what it's like to burst alive up out of my grave after you all have buried me. I want to know what that's like. And I said, great, you do that. And when you come up out of your grave, David and I will be standing there going, well, how was it? We both have our similar hope which is whether we're in the grave or whether we're alive and remaining, we're both going to be changed and glorified so that we can be with the Lord eternally. And that's what Paul gets at in 1 Thessalonians 4. So turn there. The book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul, in anticipating the return of Christ and the instantaneous change, had to deal with people who were saying, well, what about our loved ones who have already died? Those who have already passed on, are they going to in some way miss the return of Christ? I mean, after all, they're dead. We're looking forward to that glorious hope. We're looking forward to and loving that appearing of Christ. But what about our loved ones that are dead? 1 Thessalonians 4, starting at verse 13, Paul responds like this. We do not want you to be uninformed, the King James says, ignorant, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have already died, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Okay, here's a new wrinkle. Paul says those who have already died, their spirits have already gone on to heaven, and when Christ returns, he's going to return with them so that they can inhabit those new spiritual bodies. So rather than have no hope, look forward hopefully because if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, which we absolutely do believe, that's the heart and soul of the Christian faith if we believe that he died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus so this we say to you by the word of the Lord he wants to be very specific here and make sure you know that this is not Paul's opinion this is not something that Paul dreamed up he is saying this He got it right from Jesus, so this is solid, verifiable information. This we say by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those. Who have fallen asleep. In other words, there's going to be a general equality to all those who belong to Christ. We're not going to get to go to heaven ahead of them just because we're alive and remaining when Christ returns. We will not precede them that have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the chief angel, the archangel. And with the trumpet of God, remember a moment ago, Paul referred to the sounding of a trumpet, the last trump. Here's that same scenario being played out again, that he is going to return with a shout and the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ rise first. So rather than we precede the dead ones, the dead ones precede us. So the first thing that occurs is that the dead in Christ rise. That is why I said to Elder Ward, David and I will be standing there when you rise up out of your grave asking you how it was because we're not going to precede those that are dead in Christ. First, they're going to rise, which means we who are alive and remain will actually experience that. We'll actually see our loved ones alive and well again the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore. Comfort one another with these words. We're talking eschatological hope here. Yet again Paul has said this teaching is comfort to you. Encourage one another with these words. Encourage them that their dead loved ones who have died in Christ are going to come up out of their graves and are going to be as much a part of the gathering of the church as those who are alive and remain are going to be. This is a tremendous comfort to the church. That we all, whether we're living or whether we have died, we are all going to be gathered together as a body. And then we are going to rise up to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, the same way that he rose again from the dead, we are promised, we are guaranteed that we are going to rise up from the dead. But then it gets better. The same way that he rose up off the planet into the clouds of the air, we're promised to rise up off the planet into the clouds in the air. So that we will then meet the Lord in the air. And so will we ever be with the Lord. Boy I like those words. Finally our faith is going to become sight. The things that we have hoped for are going to become reality. And we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And be with him for eternity. Now in the midst of that. In the midst of that explanation, that we are going to be caught up together, Paul uses a very specific word, and we have to spend some time talking about this word, because this word has caused a tremendous amount of theological wrangling, arguing, debating, dissension for the last 2,000 years of the church. In English letters, the Greek word is h-a-r-p-a-z-o. In the Greek language, a z creates the d-z phonetic. And so this word is harpazo. Now this word harpazo has a very definite meaning. Some words in Greek have a wide semantic range. For instance, the way that John uses the word cosmos, translated world, he uses it all the way from don't love the world, or the things that are in the world, all the way to Jesus saying, I pray not for the world, but then God so loved the world. And so that's a very wide semantic range, and you have to understand contextually what the meaning of the word is. Not so with harpazo. Harpazo only means one thing. And I'm going to demonstrate that to you as we close up the morning. I'm going to make you familiar with the word harpazo and how it is used in Scripture so that you can see that it only means one thing. And what it means is snatch away. I'm putting this here on purpose so that I can demonstrate. Oh, oh, here, hold this. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to demonstrate Harpazo for you. Are you ready? That was Harpazo. Now the question is, how much effort did the water jug put in?
0: None.
1: None. The person who does the snatching away is the actor who has all the power and authority. The thing that is snatched away is passive in the process. And so that word was used in common Greek parlance. Any time that a robber or a thief would fall on you and take away your riches, take away your purse, snatch something away from you, that was the word for it, harpazo, because they snatched it away from you. I'm going to show you that in the New Testament, that's the way that it is consistently used. Now, that word harpazo is translated into the Latin language as rapturo. Rapturo and harpazo mean the exact same thing. This is just the Latin word. That Latin word moved into the English language as rapture. That's where we get the word rapture, and so when you talk about a rapture, people will say to you, well, you can't find a rapture anywhere in the Bible. I was actually challenged with that several years ago, a fellow who said to me, do you believe in the rapture? And I said, oh, believe in it? It doesn't matter if I believe in it or not. It's in the Bible, so it's a fact, And he said, you can't find a rapture anywhere in the Bible. And I said, me? I can't? Because I can. I don't know about you, but it's in there. It's in there because the word harpazo is in there, which is the word rapturo, which is the word rapture. Now, the verb form of that Latin word is rapio, which means, by the way, to be carried away, to be seized, to be snatched up. But that rapio could also be used in the sense of somebody being so spiritually enwrapped, which is where we get the English word, enwrapped. You can become so spiritually carried away with things that that would be rapio. Mm-hmm. So that word, the rapture of the church, the harpazo of the church means the carrying away of the church from earth to heaven because that's exactly the way that Paul just used it. Let's read it now in context again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are alive and remain will be harpazo together with them into the clouds To meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. If that's not the rapture, I don't know what is. Because he's using the very specific language, the very specific word that has been passed down to us in English as the word rapture. You understand that? Matthew 13:19. we're going to look at a couple of uses of this word harpazo, just so that you can get some sense of the very limited semantic range of the word, so that by the time you leave this morning, you are convinced that the concept of the rapture, regardless of when it's happening, this morning we're not here to talk about when it happens, we'll get to that, but this morning I'm just trying to establish that it does happen, it has to happen, it's prophesied to happen. And it's talked about repeatedly in the Bible, therefore, if it doesn't happen, the Bible's not true or God's a liar. So when people say to me silly things like, you can't find a rapture in the Bible, I think I don't know what Bible you're reading, but the actual Bible that the Protestant church has always loved, that was handed to us from the disciples, actually does teach a rapture. So by the time you leave this morning, I just want you there, just agreeing that there is, in fact, a future hope of a rapture that is promised in the Bible in the weeks to come. We'll talk about when that's going to happen. But for the moment, it's got to happen. You got it? See the argument? Okay. Matthew 13, 19, as I said, Jesus is going to use this word. When one hears the word of the kingdom, this is when he's talking about The sower and the seed, and he's likening the word to the seed that is distributed. When one heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then comes the wicked one and snatches away that which was sown in his heart. That's the word harpazo. Again, I'm just demonstrating. It always means the same thing. Jesus himself used the word harpazo because it perfectly identified what Satan does when somebody doesn't understand the word of God. He immediately snatches it away from them. In John 6.15, we read, when Jesus therefore perceived that the crowd was going to come and take him by force to make him king. He departed again into a mountain himself alone. That entire phrase translated take him by force is the single Greek word harpazo. When he perceived that they were going to come snatch him, grab him, take him away and make him a king. John 10, 12. Jesus again speaking. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. That word catches them is harpazo. What does a wolf do to sheep? Snatches them, grabs them. How much effort do the sheep put in? None. It is the wolf... That has the power to do the snatching away. That's the word harpazo. John 10, 28 and 29. Jesus speaking again. Jesus liked this word. He was very familiar with this word. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. It's the word harpazo nor will any man harpazo them out of my hand my father which gave them to me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand it's the word harpazo are you getting a sense of how this word is used in Acts twenty three ten, there was a great dissension that arose the chief captain fearing lest Paul should be pulled into pieces by the mob, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the castle. That entire phrase, take him by force, is the Greek word harpazo. Go take him by force. Okay, so how much actual energy was Paul putting forward in that process? He was taken away. He was snatched. He was grabbed. He was taken by force by the soldiers. Finally in the book of Jude chapter 1 verse 23 says save others snatching them out of the fire that entire phrase snatching them out is a translation of harpazo save others snatching them out of the fire and on some have mercy with fear hating even the garment that is polluted by the flesh. Okay, so, so far, I think we've demonstrated that the word harpazo means to snatch away. It's all it ever means. I've just demonstrated that in the Bible, that's all it ever means. There are no places where harpazo means skip through the daisies or some other definition. It always means to be seized on with force, to be snatched away, to be taken away. So now the question is, okay, well then, does the Bible say that God ever harpazos people. Mm. Because we see here how it's used for things and people and ideas being snatched away physically. But does God ever spiritually snatch away people? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. (laughs) Because I got an answer. Mm. Everybody turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8, so that you can see it yourself. We're very close to the end, theoretically. Does God ever harpazo people, and can we find a demonstration of it in the Bible? Acts 8, starting at verse 34, we're going to read to verse 40. The Ethiopian eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does this prophet say this? of himself or of someone else Philip opened his mouth you know this story and beginning from this particular scripture he preached Jesus to the eunuch and as they went along the road they came to some water and the eunuch said look water what prevents me from being baptized and Philip said if you believe with all your heart you may and he answered and said I believe that Jesus is the son of God And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord, Harpazo, there it is right there, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And that word snatched him away, that entire phrase? It's Harpazo. And in fact, I do believe, and Steve can correct me, as I'm sure he will, but I believe the word Harpazo is twice in that verse. Is it not? Is it not Harpazo, Philippos Harpazo? I mean, so here you have a demonstration of the spirit of the Lord snatching somebody away. And the eunuch no longer saw him. I mean, he was just gone. He was literally, genuinely raptured. Mm -hmm. So the Ethiopian eunuch went his way rejoicing. Who knows what he was thinking at that moment. But the man who just baptized him, who just taught Jesus to him, disappeared. But Philip found himself in Azotus in a completely different place. Philip was standing with him in the water, coming up out of the water, and suddenly he's in Azotus. I like the language of he found himself in Azotus. Like, whoa, how did I get here? <laughs> and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Okay, so that is an example, a biblical example, an inarguable biblical example Of the spirit of the Lord, that's the language, harpazoing Philip, snatching him away until he disappears and then appears somewhere else. And that word harpazo is used. Okay, so I think we can now say that the Bible does teach that people get raptured. Anybody want to argue? Because I'll go two out of three falls with you. I can take any man twice my height and half my weight. (laughs) So if if you want to go, Second 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 4, Paul's talking about a man who had been to the third heaven. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Guess what word that is? Harpazo, caught up into heaven that's a rapture see this is why I said earlier me I can't find a rapture in the Bible it's all over the Bible I knew a man who was caught up into the third heaven and I know how such a man whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know God knows he was caught up into paradise And heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Okay, Paul seems pretty convinced of this whole Harpazo thing, so when he says specifically that the church, alive or dead, is going to be harpazoed into the sky to meet the Lord in the air to meet him in the clouds and so will we ever be with the Lord he seems to know exactly what he's talking about and he used that word Harpazo on purpose to describe what is going to happen to us as part of our eschatological hope we are going to be snatched away from the planet and taken into the air to meet our Lord and Savior that is exactly what is promised that is exactly what our forward thinking hope is last verse Revelation 12 verses 3 to 5 then another sign appeared in the sky it was a huge red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on its heads were seven diadems Its tail swept away a third of the stars of the sky and hurled them down to the earth. And then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth to devour her child when she was going to give birth. And she gave birth to a son, a male child. Destined to rule all nations with an iron rod. We began with Christ is coming back to rule all nations with an iron rod. Here's the promise that he's coming back to rule all nations with an iron rod. And her child was Harpazo, caught up to God and to his throne. Why did Christ sail up off the planet? Because he was caught up by the spirit of God who brought him to the very throne of God And we ourselves are promised the same journey. That we ourselves are going to be caught up by the spirit of God. To stand in the very presence of God. To go inhabit the very home that our husband has prepared for us. And the way we're going to get there is not by our effort. Not by our work. Not by us jumping high enough to get there. Instead, we are going to be, by the very power of God, snatched away and taken up into the air to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. And so encourage one another with these words. Have you ever heard a more encouraging thing? Now I hope that you understand that the rapture of the church is an actual biblical reality. There's no way to avoid the language that the Bible uses. In the weeks to come, we'll argue about the when. But for the moment, I just want you to see that this is all part of our Christian hope. This is part of what we're looking forward to. This is why we do be the Christian that's, that's why we're Christian, because we have these remarkable benefits and this tremendous hope. Grab a hymnal. We are going to sing, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. Steve's going to come up and lead you in this final hymn, and then Michael will be up for our closing prayer. 5
0: 9 5 one of my favorite hymns. The sands of time are sinking. <laughs>